are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Rootbound is brought to you by Boughs of Holly. They're not only for traditional holiday use. Decorate your space with Boughs of Holly all year long. Boughs of Holly, everyone's favorite bough. Hello, thank you for listening to the 53rd episode of Rootbound. I'm your host, Steve. And if you didn't know, Rootbound is the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And each week, I invite a guest who comes on the show to share with me about a plant that means something to them. Then I share with a guest about a plant that means something to me. And through this process, we all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. Before we meet our guest this episode, I wanted to talk about the word garnish, because both of the plants we talk about today could be used for garnish, and one of them I would say is it's the quintessential garnish, at least in my life, or at least in my history, and I wanted to dig a little bit deeper in that word, because I feel like that's one of the words we always kind of take for granted, gloss by, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about it. So if you weren't aware The definition of garnish is a decoration or embellishment of a prepared food plate or drink to augment the visual impact on the plate. But I wanted to get more. Like, what does that word actually mean, garnish? And so I went to etymology online, which I tend to do, and it says it's from the late 14th century um, to decorate, adorn, or beautify, but also in Middle English to equip a place for defense, to arm oneself for battle, or to prepare, to defend... Uh, and that's probably from old French garnisse, which means to provide, furnish, fortify, or reinforce. And that's probably from the Frankish or Proto-German warnon, to be cautious, guard, provide for. So the word warn and garnish apparently have a little bit of the same history, which is interesting. And that made me think about, you know, there's this other word garnish, to garnish wages and apparently that comes from this old french word which is which is kind of like to provide or furnish or to warn it was to give legal notice of something and so to garnish wages is to first give this notice legal notice of that so weird uh etymological histories of these two words that kind of don't seem like they mean the same thing they have the similar use because you're you're furnishing your plate or fortifying your plate, or also you are furnishing a person with a document uh, saying that you're going to take their money. (laughs) Anyway, um, one other interesting thing I learned about garnishes is there's a a, quite an old book, I think it was published in 1914 by the famous French chef Louis Saulnier. Apologies, French speakers, for the uh, multiple French mispronunciations I'm going to embark on now. But that book was called Le Repertoire de la Cuisine, And in this book, he lists over 200 different garnishes, which is quite amazing. And some of these garnishes might uh, sound familiar to you. For example, I didn't realize the word bourguignon in the dish boeuf bourguignon, you know, that's uh, uh, burgundy beef uh, that you might have had. Um, The uh, bourguignon is, is a reference to the garnish, which bourguignon garnish means glazed onions, mushrooms tossed in butter with diced bacon, which if, you, if you've made that dish before, you add those to the stew. So that, that bourguignon is, is a description of the garnish. And there's a bunch more in this 
list of 209 that you might find familiar, but I picked out three that I'd never heard of before, which I thought are kind of fun. So the Garnish Mozart, which is artichoke bottoms filled with celery puree and copeau potatoes, which I think just means sliced potatoes. Uh, then there's the Garnish Petit Duke, the little Duke garnish, which is tartlets filled with chicken puree mixed with creamed asparagus heads and slices of truffle. That's one fancy little duke. And then finally, the Garnish Washington, or maybe the French would say Washington. Uh, sorry, French people. Um, but that is sweet corn reduced with cream. What is this on these gentlemen's plates? Fish sticks. No, there. Oh, you mean the garnish. Garnish? Yes, garnish. A decoration or embellishment huh. of a prepared food plate or drink to augment the visual impact on the plate. Can you eat it? My garnish tastes like an orange. It is an orange. Hi, RF. Welcome to Rootbound. Hi, Steve. Do you have a plant to share with us today? Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about rosemary. Wonderful. Uh, I, I'm surprised that plant hasn't been covered yet, but uh, I'm excited to hear about it. And it's one that, you know, I think everybody uses a lot, but I actually know few details about it. So I'm very excited. Can you first explain why you chose it? Why is rosemary meaningful to you? Uh, you know, the, the simplest and probably silliest reason is just I like the smell of it. And, uh, you know, every time I walk by a rosemary bush, which is surprisingly more often than I would expect, I always, I can't resist brushing against it and getting some of that aroma on me. So uh, that's kind of where it started. But also, uh, I love to cook and uh, I want to learn how to cook with more fresh herbs. You know, things like basil and rosemary are pretty easy to grow and easy to work with. So uh, that's kind of where I started for, for picking rosemary in the first place. And I would say mostly I just cook it, cook potatoes with it, but I want to learn how to do some more things too. So. Very good. Do you, do you remember like when you first learned like that you can like brush against a rosemary plant and like smell it like that? Yeah, probably as a kid, but I think there's a lot more of it where I live now in central Texas compared to where I used to live in Southern California. So uh, it grows kind of everywhere here since it's relatively drought resistant and weather tolerant and uh, it's just kind of used like as a shrub, like even as a privacy bush in a lot of places around here. So, and so I guess more so now I encounter it all over the place and always brush against it. Yeah, that's that's always cool. Like I, I don't think I realized until like relatively late in life how much of a landscaping herb rosemary is used as, and it's kind of fun to see it. Like, yeah, just like this this awesome food herb, just kind of like along the streets, of course. Maybe you have to be careful which ones you try to use in your food because you don't know what <laughs> what has gone on with those plants. Yeah, yeah, yeah I guess. Cool. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, I would say I learned about that as a kid, but now it's force of habit as an adult every time I walk past, which is more often than I would expect. I'm the same way, actually, with lots of plants. Like, I I don't run as much rosemary here. I think maybe it's a little too humid for rosemary, and uh, but I don't know, maybe, maybe not. It's just not as common. But like lavender, I always do that with. And almost actually <laughs> any plant now that I've done this podcast, if I think it's going to smell good, I'll, I'll like rub against it and see if it does. So, you know, I like I said, I wanted to wanted to learn how to cook with some fresh herbs and grow some simple stuff. And I'm not terribly good at gardening as it turns out. But 
my wife and I did start doing some container gardening just with basil and rosemary over the last uh, couple summers or springs, I guess we started. Uh, and it worked out pretty well. I think it you fill the reservoir and let it go and things that are easy to grow, even I can make it happen. So uh, yeah, I've actually been able to grow some and, and use some directly in cooking, which has been uh, a lot of fun. Wonderful. Um, do you have some fun facts and dazzling details about rosemary? I do, yeah. Um, so let's see, to start out with, rosemary is native to the Mediterranean basin, which I think makes sense. That's typically we associate it with probably like French and Italian cooking more than anything. So that seems reasonable. Um, mm-hmm. Like a lot of herbs that are familiar to us, it's in the mint family. So it's related to basil, oregano. So, you know, it looks so different from those. So I was kind of surprised, but also sort of makes sense that we historically have gravitated to the same sort of grouping of plants. Yeah, yeah. In, in, that, yeah, I remember that. And I forget the name of that family scientifically. Maybe I'll drop that in the end, unless you have that written down. Is it Lama? No, Lama I just wrote mint, so. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, the mint is a bigger family. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's interesting. And I guess like uh, chemically, they all have kind of these interesting aromatic, good smelling compounds, which is probably why they're similar. Yeah, related. yeah. That's just speculation. Yeah, no, we'll talk a little bit about that, I think, too. So Wonderful. I, I suspect it. <laughs> what else have I got for you? Um, the name means dew of the sea. So I think originally it was growing closer to the actual Mediterranean. And so the notion is that all it needs to survive is just uh, the humidity from being near the sea or the ocean. And that's good enough to keep it um, to keep it pretty healthy, which I guess makes sense to some of the other applications we see for it. Interesting. Okay, that's fascinating because I guess the mare in Mary is like the word ocean or sea in in like Latin language. Is that right? Oh, Uh and then so rose has something to do with dew and like the rose plant we have was also, or I I always like, you know, mix those together. If you don't know the answer to this, it's okay. And we always say the audience can Google it. But that I never, I never like Uh thought that it was related to the ocean in any way. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah, for sure. You're right. Mary must be coming from the word for sea in whichever language we're, we're picking. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that must be how it is. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I always and, you know, that it kind was of like brought... a person's name or something, uh, which it is, but I was like, like sure. it come from that, you know? Yeah, yeah, that was kind of the, probably the first, one of the more interesting things I came across right away. Uh, and, you know, that makes sense, like we were talking about earlier, that it sort of grows in drought-like places or uh, as like a shrub where we don't need to water it a whole lot. So that makes sense that uh, here in central Texas, it does okay with our kind of wild range of weather. Indeed, indeed. Uh, Let's see, historically, I have a lot of interesting things to to tell you. So uh, to start out with, there's a reference to rosemary on a cuneiform stone tablet from 5th century B.C., Whoa. So so that's that's pretty nuts, but uh, again, it makes sense, right? Mesopotamia, Egypt, all that same sort of idea that the, the soil they had probably would be great for, for growing something like that. And uh, if it grows on its own without too much intervention, then that's probably even better. So uh, 
And then add to that, um, the Egyptians used it in, in burial rituals. Uh, and, you know, if I say 5th century BC, probably the next thought is to think about the Greeks. So, uh, of course, they uh, they have rosemary in all sorts of applications. So um, the Greeks, among other things, apparently they wore rosemary garlands because they thought it would promote memory so that it would be, uh, I guess, good for your brain somehow, which is interesting. Interesting. You know what? I think... And this is probably because they're all in the same kind of wheelhouse. But I think uh, I remember, I think it was the Sage episode that Sage is also supposed to be good for memory. And they, they kind of have similar qualities, I guess, at least the way they smell to humans. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, let's see. What else have I got for you? So I guess after the Greeks, then that brings us to, to Roman times. So uh, Rosemary was strongly associated with Venus. And then... I assume as a semi-related fact that made it the symbol for fidelity. So mm-hmm. in, in Roman times, it was definitely associated with, with weddings. So like the bride would wear a rosemary headband and uh, also for, for funerals. So all that sort of stuff, it seems like it was a pretty commonly used plant for, for a wide range of purposes. Very interesting. I, th- I feel like in like uh, prehistory times, and, and spoiler alert, there's some things like this in my plant too. Uh, people use plants for a lot more things than just eating them. Like the ones that we just eat today, like seems like that was like not their primary purpose, or at least not the ones that were notable <laughs> to that read about. Is like yeah, definitely yeah, gar- yeah. We don't wear as many like uh, gar- you know like garlands or like wreaths uh, <laughs> as 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 people used to, I guess. Maybe that's going to be the new health movement. We'll bring it back. Yeah, or just new fashion. You know, bring back the yeah the, <laughs> the wreaths, the wreath crowns, and stuff like that. It's uh, yeah, very good. And you were talking about sage a little bit, kind of some related ideas, and um, they also, I guess, in the Middle Ages, apparently they burned rosemary in, uh, I guess I'll dare to call them hospitals, but places where one would be treated if sick during the, the <laughs> Middle Ages as a as a disinfectant. And so um, I guess not 100% unfounded with what we understand about it now, but uh, kind of interesting. Uh, let's see, then I guess the last of the, the history facts for you is that it, it was one of the one of the plants brought to the U.S. by colonists and uh since it was so durable it was really a big deal for for them to have as a uh really as like a something they could preserve easily so harvest it and Mm. dry it out and i imagine that's how a lot of how it became known to us in the way it is now is you know more often than not in a typical kitchen it's just a dry herb we sprinkle on stuff at least for me potatoes chicken fish that sort of thing yeah, it's pretty interesting. It is, it is one of like the easier to preserve herbs. I've, you know, played with it a little bit. And like when you're trying to dry yeah. something that's got a little bit of a softer leaf, it doesn't always work out. Um, or or things don't keep their flavors much, but rosemary is like pretty easy and pretty keeps this kind of similar flavor even when dried. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see, from from there, I, I have sciencey things to, to tell you. Wonderful. I love sciencey things. Okay, so uh, I guess I'll I'll talk about the 
the essential oils from rosemary because that kind of gets back to what we were talking about in the beginning with the the smells. So uh, it looks like the major component of the essential oil from rosemary is actually pinene, which is what it sounds like mm-hmm. it is. It's the make like the primary aromatic from conifers. So um, makes sense, right? That's certainly a, a big part of that smell, but it's still so unique in and of itself. So that's the major one. But then uh, this you might find interesting. The second major component is cineol, which is what makes eucalyptus smell like eucalyptus. Oh, wow. I would not have guessed that. So then that. I started to think that if I were to tell you what rosemary smelled like, I guess now with some scientific bias, it makes sense. It's kind of this hybrid of the eucalyptus smell and pine tree smell. Yeah, that I, that, that makes sense because it yeah, really definitely has that. It's a bit more like uh, pungent like eucalyptus, right? Um but it definitely yeah, is yeah. piney, right? Uh, yeah, that's really fascinating. Is there any thyme oil in there? Uh, let's see. What's the last one? It just said it said pinene, cineol, and camphor. Which I oh, guess, okay, darn. I was thyme oil in a bunch a of stuff. Of I was going to guess, <laughs> but I guess I'm wrong there. Thyme thyme oil pops up in a lot of those other kinds of herbs. Yeah, it, not not where yeah. I looked, but I guess I guess yeah, I just not. picked the first three, so. <laughs> I was just guessing, so, <laughs> so, but I <laughs> guess I was wrong. Yeah, that's that's super fascinating. Yeah, very, good, very good. I think you know, they think the pinene is not one that I've seen pop up, but I think that's why maybe it adds such a, a unique flavor because there's, I don't think, besides maybe pine needles, which I know some people use those in food, um, that still I think gives it such a unique flavor. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, in in the well labs that I teach and one of the kind of early on organic chemistry labs, uh, we usually have our students do a extraction of the essential oils from cloves Mm. uh, because it's pretty easy to do. And uh, historically, at least for me, the timing always seems to be that we do it around November. And so uh, as you (laughs) might guess, it immediately makes me think of, of pumpkin pie and uh, just Thanksgiving in general. Um, but, you know, we do a pretty simple process where uh, it's called steam distillation, but you really just like make a tea out of of uh, ground up cloves and then collect, um, collect the extract and kind of clean it up. But um, as much as I like the smell of cloves in November, we've all I've been talking about coming up with other experiments just for variety for our sake. So uh, now that I think about rosemary being pretty easy to work with, and uh, it would give us this really nice piney smell, I guess, when we try to extract it. But that might be something that that I want to try. Easier to find where you live, too, the the, the raw material. Yeah. You can yeah, just tell the students to pick it up on their way to class. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just bring bring a few uh, bring a few sprigs, and we'll we'll try it that way. Yeah, BYO Rosemary Lab. <laughs> That's really interesting. I've been wanting to try my own steam distillation of herbs. Um, I don't have a chemistry mm-hmm. lab. Um, can you tell me a little bit more of that process? Like, how does that work? And then, like, the steam is part of it. So, I guess, I guess the steam just separates because you're getting oils and water. So, how do you how do you actually get the water out of there? Do you you evaporate it off later, or I don't know? Tell me a little more about steam distillation because it's a it's something I've been really thinking about trying on my own in the kitchen. 
Yeah, sure. No, I think you can. I think you can come up with a setup to do it at at home. It'll probably depend on the exact uh, essential oil that you're extracting, but uh, I'll tell you kind of how we do it in the lab, and then maybe an idea of how it could be done at home. Um, like I said, it's kind of like you make a, a tea out of it. So uh, what we usually do is we just put some powdered cloves in a flask with some water, uh, start heating that up to boiling. But then the, the steam part of the distillation is you have a reservoir of water kind of suspended above the flask that you're boiling. And so once you get that water boiling, you have a kind of a basic distillation set up to collect the liquid that's boiling across. And then you replenish it from the top with fresh water kind of constantly. So in the perfect world, you're matching the rate of collecting with the rate of the water dripping in. And so really you're making, the concept is, right, that boiling water is going to be able to extract essential oils from pretty much most plant material, whatever it is we're looking at. But uh, if I just tried to heat it up to, I guess, evaporate it directly from the organic material, it would burn. So mm -hmm. that's the concept of steam distillation. And so then, um, I don't know, you collect for like an hour or so, just the, the tea essentially that's dripping across. And then uh, for non-eating purposes, we use a solvent that's probably toxic for, for us, like that chloromethane. <laughs> uh, but easiest way to do it, right? You just mix it together and extract all the organic stuff out of the water. But I feel like at, at home, you could probably evaporate it down uh, pretty close to to nothing, and then you'd essentially end up with that oil. I, I don't know exactly what you would do. I was thinking, mm. um, yeah, that's probably the way I, I would guess it's because, best. Because you, I'm sure you, there's, there's kits. Yeah, I, I think there are, and I really haven't looked into enough, but I'm thinking, so with your process, the you have this... Uh, this distillate that's a mix of water and the oils or, or do you have the oils are it's, it's still some water, I guess, or at the end before you add your, yeah, it's, it's a little, it's a little bit of oil with a lot of water. So mm -hmm. I guess you could probably use like a fat separator and do okay to get, to get the essential oils away, depending on what they are. But in the lab, we, extract it with an organic solvent that just pulls all the oils out of the water that, that makes sense yeah um audience uh, don't mess around with organic solvents unless you're an expert <laughs> maybe google yeah. <laughs> a safer way to do it but if you want to do it in in high yield in the chemistry way I, that that totally makes sense um sure sure very good um do you have any other fun facts or dazzling details about rosemary uh let's see i think the the last things but to add were that, uh, of course, uh, it's considered to be an antioxidant, like a lot of herbs and things that we, we should have in our diets. Uh, and the most modern historical fact, I guess, is that there's some work on it being used as an anti-inflammatory drug now, which, hmm. you know, we're always trying to find other sources for, for anti-inflammatories. So um, I guess, yeah, I think that's pretty much... Those, those are the facts that I, I have. So uh, it makes sense, though, that it would have some properties as an anti-inflammatory on top of all, all of the other things. 
And I find I lose all track of time When I'm with Rosemary With Rosemary Well, it's always June and January Well, very good. Thank you for sharing about Rosemary with me. Do you mind if I share a plant with you? Yeah, for sure. Awesome. So the plant that I chose, I, I chose it just because it was like very um, natural to choose, knowing that you were going to choose rosemary. And um, also, we already covered on the podcast in different episodes, both um, sage and thyme. So I chose parsley. So now we have all the parts of that Simon and Garfunkel song, uh, parsley, sage, rosemary, thyme, have all been right. covered <laughs> on the podcast. Um, but I didn't choose parsley just because of the joke or that it goes well with your plant. Um, I chose parsley because I feel like, and you probably have this experience too, and maybe maybe younger people don't quite remember this, but parsley used to be literally a, like on every plate at every restaurant. Every restaurant. I mean, from whatever, Bob's Big Boy to a fancy restaurant, you got parsley in the corner of your plate. <laughs> yeah, and I was I was thinking about that, and I was like, what what is the deal with that? And I, I need to read about it a little bit more, but I did find two interesting articles. Um, one that's called Why the Parsley Garnish by Jan Whitaker, and the other one which is called How Did Curly Parsley Get So Uncool by Michael Y. Park, uh, that one being in Bon Appetit. And kind of the general the general understanding is that in like the 70s, European French cuisine started to kind of become popular in the United States and they were kind of borrowing this idea of the garnish but it was almost like a an American impression of what a garnish is <laughs> it was almost, and it was like it makes it look nicer but as far as like it having a, a usefulness which most often in European cuisine there is a reason it was a little bit more of like a, a facsimile of like European cuisine is, is my best understanding of why it became a thing um, and then it just became like a fad, I guess, which is pretty fascinating. Huh. I wonder if we can trace it back to like Julia Child, uh, cookbook things. Totally. I was trying to figure that out and I might do a little bit more research uh, at the end of the show. If not audience, you can do your own, but yeah, I was thinking, is there like a moment where it became a thing? And I did find that like, yeah. uh, like James Beard was a fan of using parsley, but, but he actually was not a fan of the way it was being used in garnishes in these kind of like just purely mm -hmm. decorative ways. Um, and it's almost like maybe some chefs were using it creatively, but then the popularity became a fad and just be kind of became this thing that you did. And there was also this like marketing aspect. So this article by Jan Whitaker talks about how there was, um, it became recommended to put parsley around the meat in a deli window because it just made it look more appealing. Yeah. And then restaurants started doing that too. And then it just be kind of came like the thing that you have to do to make your food look more appealing. And also if you think about mm -hmm. some of the food being served in the seventies, you know, maybe you needed a little bit of green on the plate to make it look more appealing. Um, yeah, I guess so. And I have one interesting quote here, which is uh, also from the Jan Whitaker article. She's quoting in her article, uh, the head of the, uh, she's quoting, or Jan is quoting in the article, uh, the head of the Southern California Restaurant Association in 1978 um, that says he hated to see all the food used as garnishes go to waste in his restaurant, including tons of lettuce. But it was necessary for merchandising, he said. We have to make food attractive. It's part of the cost of putting an item on the table. So I guess there was this like idea at the time that 
you had to use a garnish even though it was wasteful because that's how you like sold food. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Which is like total like a I don't know seventies eighties consumerism idea of of um of food. I think I think I don't know very fascinating. Um, and you know, I I totally remember as a kid when it showed up on on a plate, I would scoot it off the plate immediately just because I didn't want it didn't want it to pollute any of my, my food. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And well, and I remember, and I was trying to figure out like, and I couldn't really get to the bottom of this of there was this idea and I have in my brain that you weren't supposed to eat it, that it was like just for show. And that seems so strange to me now, but I don't know where that came from. Yeah. And you know, now the the more I learn how to cook with herbs, the more I see parsley is everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Such a strange thing. And then the other thing that I read, which I kind of remember this too, is there was like a joke around then that because parsley wasn't used, there was a joke that at restaurants, they would just reuse it from the, from the previous, you know, guest's <laughs> plate and put it under the next plate, which I don't think ever really happened. Well, maybe it happened, but I don't think it was common, but that was a joke because no one touched it. It was always there at the end right. of the dish. <laughs> um, the stuff that was on our dishes was most likely curly parsley, but the stuff we use now is flat parsley or Italian parsley. Um, and that article that I mentioned before, it talks about how we kind of made this transition culinarily in the United States from the curly parsley, mostly as a garnish using flat parsley, which does have more flavor. Um, but mm-hmm. it also makes this argument that maybe curly parsley got a bad rap because it kind of became seen as tacky, uh, you know? So anyway, it's a fascinating article. I'm not going to go into too much more detail, but audience read it. Cause it's, yeah. Who know you could write so much about parsley uh, as a garnish. <laughs> Um, okay, so some fun facts and dazzling details about parsley. Um, it's uh, it's uh, scientific name is Petrosilinum crispum, and Petrosilinum is Greek, and those two parts mean rock celery, which is pretty interesting. Um, and it was uh, it was it was uh, believed to have been first discovered growing in the rocks in the hills and mountains around Greece. So that's where the name came. It's it's a Greek rooted word, and you do sense. think about without the you know the leaves do look a little bit like celery and you can use celery leaves in a similar way to parsley but this is just the rock celery yeah <laughs> and then the crispum part means like crimpled and i think it's talking about the basically the curly leaf celery which i think is the more wilder version of celery than i think the the italian flat leaf variety is a bit more of a cultivated sub you know uh cultivar of of uh, of parsley. You know, for me, when I think about parsley, I kind of have two connections. One, moving it off my plate as a kid. <laughs> and then the other one, when trying to buy cilantro, making sure I didn't screw up and accidentally buy uh, <laughs> parsley. True, true. You know, that's another thing I, I was thinking about too, of, of, you know, growing up like you in Southern California, I feel like cilantro really took the place of parsley and a lot of the food that yeah, I yeah. ate. And so I, I need to grow my appreciation of parsley more, I think. But I think it's like, for me, it's like, oh, cilantro is just so much more flavorful, but it's really a different kind of flavor. But yeah, I think that's maybe Absolutely, the reason yeah. why I didn't, I didn't use it as much in the past. And I, I need to use it more. Some, some other fun facts and dazzling details. Some, some interesting facts I found from, uh, it's from a chapter in a book called Medicinal Spices and Vegetables from Africa. And the chapter is called Petrosilinum Crispum, a review. Uh, it's a very scientific article uh, about um, about uh, parsley, 
But a few historical facts, and kind of similar to your historical facts to Rosemary, um, the Greeks didn't really eat parsley, but they used it for funeral wreaths and to crown crowns to honor the winner of certain sporting events. Um, mm, cool. So it was more uh, it was more of that. Um, the Romans also didn't really eat parsley, but they used it for de- deodorizing corpses and uh, and also to cover up alcohol on their breath. Huh. So maybe that that'll connect us back to the uh, garnished side of things. To- totally. Well, because I do remember one thing. It was like one: you're not supposed to eat it. It's just for decoration. But other people said the reason for it is to freshen your breath after the meal. You're supposed to eat it after you're done. Yeah. Yeah. And I couldn't find real good sources for either of those things, but um, but I do remember <laughs> both of those. And and it apparently goes back. I mean, as a kid, I wasn't trying to cover up alcohol in my breath, but maybe I should try that these days. Yeah, we'll see what parsley does. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. And then the the last little historical um fact is that apparently it, its popularization in like modern cuisine is supposedly can be traced back to the 16th century when Catherine de Medici brought it to France from Italy and kind of this birth of more like Ah. fancy French cuisine. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think in, I know we talk about Italian parsley, but I feel like I think about it more in French food than Italian food. Um, Yeah. It appears in both and Mediterranean cooking has it more than I realize, which that may connect back to my thinking more about cilantro than parsley in general. But yeah, I think Mediterranean food, like falafel, has it in there, um, and then all sorts of French stews, definitely. But yeah, I don't know yeah. that I think about it as part of kind of traditional Italian sauces, but maybe it's in there in smaller amounts. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I'm, I'm sure some Italian expert could think about it. It probably is in a lot of stuff that I'm just not thinking about now. Um, yeah. And, and then the, the last little thing, which is interesting, and I didn't, I, there were so many of these things, I didn't write them all down, but apparently it's one, it, it's one of the plants that has the most superstitions around it. Um, hmm. And there's one of the superstitions, which is like totally bizarre. And just like makes you think of how like, you know, people in the middle ages were like thinking about things in some places. They called it the, uh, the, the devil's herb. <laughs> And it's because it grows so slow. Apparently, it's very slow to germinate. Okay. They said that the, that it, it grows to the devil nine times before it sprouts. So it's like the roots go all the way down to hell <laughs> and back before it um, sprouts. And because of that, I guess you had to be more careful with how you used it. But it didn't seem like it, like, for being such a devil's plant, it didn't seem like it was, like, that big of a deal. I don't know. People, people thinking, but that was one of the main ones. There's also some other, there's other, other ones about, like, uh, about if it grows in a garden, that means the woman is the head of the household, which seems weird and sexist, but also medieval. <laughs> and I don't know, but there's there's a whole list more. Apparently, it's one of the plants with the most superstitions around it for some reason. Interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought that. Yeah, I'm neither neither I. I mean, uh, so yeah, that's that's partially, and we have now completed the 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 those four herbs: parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. In the episode. So thank you, R, for talking about rosemary, and uh, thanks for joining me on Rootbound. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Are you going to Scarborough Fair? Are you going to Scarborough Fair? Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. 
first time I heard those words together, Scarborough Fair, I was probably like six or seven, and I was in Texas, and I went to a place called Scarborough Fair, and it was a Renaissance festival. And I had to look this up because I didn't really remember many of the details, but yes, it was a Renaissance festival. It is still a Renaissance festival in Waxahachie, Texas, which is south of Dallas. And I remember being there as a little kid, and there was like court jesters and knife throwers, and I got a little wooden sword, and it was like a lot of fun. But I didn't know Scarborough Fair was referencing anything real. I didn't know what it meant. But apparently, Scarborough Fair was a real fair, uh, a medieval fair in Yorkshire, England, and it was a very important trading hub. It lasted for a number of days, I think in the summer, and people would come from all over Europe to trade their wares, and that was Scarborough Fair. So when uh, the song asks, are you going to Scarborough Fair? That's where they're talking about. I only learned, like, like this week that this is a very old song. I think uh, anyone from the British Islands knows that this is a really old folk song and not just a Simon and Garfunkel song. Um, but I only knew it as the Simon and Garfunkel song. Um, and so when I looked that up, I was like, oh, it's actually a very old song, probably 17th century song. And it's about unrequited love. Um, very interesting song, but really made famous by Simon and Garfunkel. Another thing I didn't realize about the song Scarborough Fair is that that line, parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme, happens like all throughout the song. It's literally the second line for every stanza. And somehow I guess I never listened to the song closely enough to realize that that line comes over and over again. And it's kind of non sequitur. Like it kind of has nothing to do with everything else they're saying. So for example, they say, are you going to Scarborough Fair? Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Remember me to one who lives there, for she was once a true love of mine. Or the second stanza, tell her to make me a cambric shirt. Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Without any seam nor needlework, and then she'll be a true love of mine. And on and on, there's a line, and then they just kind of say parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. And then they say other things that have to do with the first line. And I was pretty curious about that. Um, I couldn't... I couldn't quite figure it out, and then I found this really good article uh, by uh, Joe Schwartz uh, from McGill University in Canada that talks about potentially the um, the symbolic meanings of each of those herbs and, and what people in the Middle Ages might have believed about them and how it might apply to the song. And so I'll, I'll link that in the show notes, and you can read that it's quite, quite thorough about the meanings of each of these herbs. Um, but he does posit that maybe it was just kind of a, a, a twist of the language over time. And in fact, there was another song that's potentially a little bit older called The Elfin Knight. And I think Scarborough Fair is like a play on the song. And in versions of that song, that line, Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Thyme is different. And there's a few different examples, but one of them says, Sober Grave Grows Mary in Time. And so I can, and so I can understand like some medieval people are maybe a little bit later hearing the song and then thinking the line sober and grave grows merry in time was parsley sage rosemary and time maybe i think uh i think the jury's still out on the meaning of that but anyway that is that is all the things that came to mind when i thought about scarborough fair and parsley sage rosemary and time My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Arif Karim. Arif is a community college chemistry teacher in Austin, Texas. If you like Rootbound and you want to support the show, you can go to rootboundpodcast.com support to find about all the ways you can support the show, including leaving a rating or review on your podcatcher of choice. If you're listening on one of those on your phone right now, you can probably just scroll down and leave a rating or review right now. I would be super, super appreciative. 
Rootbound is hosted by the Garfunkel of Plant Podcasts, Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, head out to Scarborough Fair. Pick up some parsley to use as a garnish, but it's okay to eat it too. Everyone's favorite bow. It's true. I can't think of any other bows I like as much as holly.